Hey, welcome to the premiere episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. My name is Josh. I'm the preacher at the Monticello Church of Christ, and I have with me my friend and my classmate, Brandon Blackwell. Today, Brandon and I are going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12, but before we get into the text, Brandon, why don't you introduce yourself for us? Hey, I'm Brandon Blackwell. I graduated uh, in 2022, just last year, this time last year, with Josh from the Memphis School of Preaching, and I enjoyed so much my time there. I am now preaching full-time at the Thyatira Church of Christ, and that is in the Senatobia, Mississippi area, and so I have been here just about a year, and I have enjoyed it so much, and I am glad to be here on the podcast today. Appreciate it. And uh, let me extend my gratitude for your willingness to put in some time and some uh, expertise in a uh, section of scripture. I know you spent a lot of time personally in. So <laughs> uh, just to give a background of chapter 12, Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 is when David uh, lusts after Bathsheba uh, and as a result commits adultery with her. Uh, he gets her pregnant. And then uh, tries to get Uriah, her husband, uh, to go into her to cover it up when he wouldn't because of the loyalty he had uh, for his fellow soldiers and to the king, David. Uh, David created a plan, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, to put Uriah into the thickest battle to have him killed uh, in order to cover up his sin. We get to chapter 12. And what's interesting is the word sent is uh, seen 10 times in chapter 11. Uh, <clears throat> David sends Joab to battle, uh, but stays behind. Then he sees Bathsheba, so he sends, inquires about her. Verse 3, then David sends messengers to bring her in. Verse 4, verse 5, uh, Bathsheba sent a message to David that she was pregnant. Verse 6, we see David sent uh, word to Joab to send Uriah back to Jerusalem. And then we go all the way in when uh, Uriah would not uh, do what David had hoped he would do. In verse 14, we see that David sent essentially Uriah's letter of execution to Joab by the hand of Uriah. Then you go to 18, and Joab sent and told David the news about Uriah. Uh, dying, uh, and then uh, verse 22, uh, we see Joab uh, confirmed it and sent to him. And then we start verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so you kind of see the political uh, conspiracy of chapter 11 uh, taking place, David trying to cover up his sin, and then verse 12 starts out, or chapter 12 starts out with the Lord sending Nathan uh, to David. So I'll read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll turn it over to Brandon uh, to see what he has. It said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it and grew up with him and his children. 
that used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. All right, Brandon, what do you have? So just starting at the beginning of the chapter, one thing I did is I actually took a sermon that I had done and I put it at the beginning. Just if I were going to get up and preach this, I'd have this ready or teaching a class. And one thing that stands out to me from this whole experience with David is just you learn so much about the seriousness of sin, because in the very first chapter, well, 2 Samuel 11, what you really see is the domino effect of sin. You see how David begins with just a look, but he lingers. It turns into lust. That leads to deception. It turns into getting Uriah drunk and more deception and murder. And so then you come to chapter 12 after you see this great domino effect of sin. And then I have chapter 12 labeled as the reaction to sin. And I think what you see with this chapter is not only the reaction of David when he realizes the sin that he's in, but first you have the fact that Nathan the prophet confronts David with his sin. Nathan has a reaction to David's sin. And I think that's important because we live in a day and age where it's so easy to ignore sin. So many people just want to ignore sin and just put it off to the side. But beside chapter 12, I just wrote the reaction to sin by Nathan the prophet, because Nathan does not ignore the sin of David. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind. And when you think about that, too, here you have him come to David and he brings this parable. And, you know, parables, of course, we see different reasons for them. But one reason I think we have for parables, and this is what I wrote underneath verse one, is to cause men to acknowledge the truth before they realize it applies to them. Note number one under verse one is to cause men to acknowledge the truth before they realize it applies to them. And I think that's such a beautiful example because here Nathan brings this parable and David is fully going to be involved in it. He's going to agree with it. He's going to take action against the man he believes is in the wrong before he even realizes that he is the man that Nathan is referring to. And so that's just what I have under verse one. And then when you get to verse number two, and he talks about how the rich man has exceeding many flocks and herds, I drew a line from verse two to verse number four, connecting those two verses, because you see just how selfish this man in the parable is, because he has all the flocks and herds. And so I made a note from verse two to verse four that says, this is a very selfish man because he had plenty. He had everything. But what you're going to see in verse number four is despite having so much stuff, he still chose to take from the poor man in verse number four. And so that's what I have in those first four verses there. That's great. And I like what you put under one as far as uh, the, the statement making. Uh, essentially alluding to the fact that Nathan, Nathan essentially convicted or had David convict himself of his sin before he realized it. Uh, it obviously was a parable with that intent, but it was very thin, thinly veiled, I guess, for lack of a better term. Right. And the reason is, is because, uh, what I, what I did is I underlined, uh, a couple things. First off, I underlined that phrase in verse three that says lie in his arms, talking about the lamb that would lie in the owners, uh, in his owner's arms. 
And I put C verse 11 and verse four uh, of second Samuel. And when you go back over there, I underline the phrase uh, and he laid with her. And I, I think Nathan is intentionally alluding to uh, the fact that, that he knows he knows more than probably David realizes. So I think there's a correlation there. Another interesting uh, thing that I found is in verse four, the word traveler uh, in the Hebrew. Uh, the literal meaning is walker or one walking. And so I underline that phrase cha uh, traveler and I put uh, verse 11 or chapter 11, verse two. And when you go back to verse two, it says uh, it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And I think that term is intentional. It's it's not used very often in the Old Testament, but I think Nathan used that term intentionally to allude to two things in chapter 11. First off, what's found in verse 2, the fact that he was walking uh, on the roof of the king's house. But I also underline the phrase in verse 1 of chapter 11, the time when kings go out to battle and then uh, the bottom, but David remained in Jerusalem. And I think that twofold point here with that word traveler one, David was a foreigner in the sense that he wasn't where he was supposed to be in the first place. Uh, he was supposed to be out of war, but uh, instead he was walking or pacing uh, on the roof of his house, which put him in that position to stand. And like you mentioned earlier, the domino effect, it all started with David not being where he was supposed to be. Uh, if he had been where he was supposed to be, he could have avoided all the subsequent events afterwards. Uh, and I think that's a good lesson for us in the sense that uh, we are to remove ourselves as far as we can from temptation as much as humanly possible uh, in order to avoid it. And I think we live in a world that many, unfortunately, even inside the church, are trying to get as close to sin without actually sinning as they can. When the reality, the Bible teaches us the exact opposite to flee from it as much as we can. Right. And I think that's um, a great point, too, because I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, but it's in Proverbs where it talks about it's talking about women who are supposed to dress. And it talks about they dress in a way that professes godliness. And I've heard the application made from that, that that should be our mindset with everything. And so many people try to push the edge and see how close they can get to being like the world without actually being in sin. But the mindset of a Christian is not how close I can get to the edge. The mindset of a Christian should constantly be a mindset that seeks after godliness, not just in the way we dress, but in all of life in general. 100%. Second Timothy 2.22, flee also useful lust, but follow righteousness and faith and charity, peace. Uh, and so... Uh, very good. Verse five, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And I underlined the phrase man and just put himself because that's essentially who he's angry at. Uh, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Um, again, going back to the thought of David essentially pronounced judgment on himself before he realized it. Here's what's ironic about this. In verse five, he says that this man deserves to die. 
but according to the law of Moses for stealing a sheep like that, he wouldn't uh, have to face the penalty of death. Right. Uh, the penalty of stealing the sheep was actually found in verse six when he must restore the lamb fourfold. That's what the law of Moses said. So it's interesting or ironic, for lack of a better term, in verse five, that the judgment he renders is not right for the man who stole the sheep, but it's right on the nose for the judgment that he deserved in uh, committing uh, adultery with Bathsheba, having Uriah murdered. Uh, and so forth. So uh, irony there. I also underlined the phrase fourfold. And in the notes, I put David's fourfold repayment. And what's interesting is a result of his sin, Bathsheba loses the child. So that's the first child of David that dies in verse 18. He loses Amnon in uh, chapter 13, 28 and 29. That's the second child. He loses Absalom, uh, his his uh, son, in chapter 18, verses 14 through 15. And he loses Adonijah in 1 Kings 2.25. David lost four children as a result of this sin. Uh, and so you see the fourfold payment that David had to make for taking the life of Uriah. Right. Well, I am. Um, I mean, you definitely... As you continue, I think you see more and more of the consequence of his sin and the things that are brought with it. But regarding verses five and six, what you said, I agree 100 percent with. And I even wrote Exodus 22, verse one, beside verse number six, because Exodus 22, verse one, the law, of course, it says, if a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And so, of course, like you just pointed out, you see that the law of Moses called for what he said in verse six. But David is so compassionate and so upset by what has been told to him by Nathan, the prophet, that he takes it a step further and says, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And this is where I made a note I alluded to a minute ago about we see Nathan's reaction first. But then I wrote a note beside verse number five and said, secondly, we see David's reaction to sin. Now, David's going to have two reactions to sin, and his first one is in verse number five, and this is a reaction of anger. When David hears what has been done to this poor man, how this rich man took his poor, well, he took his ewe lamb, David is angered, he is outraged by the sin, and I think there's an important point there because it is okay, I think, for us to be angry, particularly over sin. When we see the unrighteousness and the things that take place in our country, maybe even sometimes, God forbid, in our congregations, that's something that should cause us to be upset, to be angry. And so I wrote, David's first reaction is angered by sin. And then I put a cross-reference to Matthew 21, 12 and 13. And that's, of course, where Jesus, he sees how they have taken the temple. They made it to a marketplace. And so he goes in and he overthrows the tables. And you see that Jesus, the sinless son of God, had an angered reaction to sin. And I also wrote beside verse number five, I made a reference to Matthew chapter seven, verse five, Matthew seven, five. And I wrote, it is easier to see the speck in your brother's eye than the plank in your own eye. Because when Nathan brings this parable, again, David is outraged, but he does not even realize yet that he's the man. 
When he sees it from somebody else's perspective, he's outraged and he wants to take action. He's angered, but he does not even realize he's the one in sin. And I think that's a great application for us today because it is easy to point out the faults in others, but we have to do what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 5, and look at our own faults first. And so that's what I have under verses 5 and 6. That's great. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. What do you got there, Brandon? So under verse number seven, when he says, thou art the man, I put that, I boxed that in, I would underline it. To me, that is such a powerful part in this chapter. When David is angered by sin, and then Nathan says, David, you're the man. It's you, you're the one who's guilty. And so that's the main thing I have from verse number seven. When we come from verse number eight, you know, I think that verse on the surface is a little, maybe, I'm not sure what the right word is, maybe just a little bit odd on the surface. But I wrote a note beside it, and I'd be interested to see what you have by verse 8. But I just wrote, this simply means that God had given David everything that was Saul's. Saul was a man. He had the kingdom. He had everything. And Saul, because of his sin and wickedness, David, because of God's providence, eventually things were turned over to him, and he had everything that once was Saul's. And so that's what I have through verses 7 and 8. Yeah, what I did is I went through and, and numbered the five things God lists. He says, one, I anointed you king over Israel. Two, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Three, I gave your ma uh, gave you your master's house. Four, your master's wives into your arms. And then five, gave you the house of uh, Israel and Judah. Uh, the first one is in reference to position. The second one's in reference to protection. The third one is in reference to wealth. The fourth one is in reference to royal priesthood, and then the fifth one is a unified nation and rule, which was all given to them. What's interesting about that is the the beginning of verse 8 when it says, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. David, after Saul died, uh, took the throne of Israel unopposed. Uh, there was no, Jonathan had died as well, but uh, no one from Saul's family tried to politic for the throne of David. As soon as Saul was out of the way, David took the throne and didn't have to uh, do anything else uh, in accordance for it. Uh, another thing that, that stuck out to me is God's statement at the end of verse 8 when he says, and if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. In other words, God was willing to give him more, which I think exemplifies or, or magnifies the senseless act of David's sin. Uh, he didn't have to do it because God was giving him everything that he needed anyway. And as a result of this senseless act, lives were destroyed, uh, iniquity was created. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit in verse 9. But this 7 and 8, even though uh, David deserved to die, 
you see the grace of God uh, seen uh, in everything that he's given David thus far, uh, the things that David didn't necessarily deserve, but God still gave to him. Right. Verse 9, uh, it's interesting in the Hebrew, uh, the direct objects are actually listed first in the Hebrew, and this is a technique that the Hebrew uh, would employ uh, to show emphasis. Uh, the literal reading from Young's literal translation says, Wherefore hast thou despised the word of Jehovah to do the evil thing in his eyes? And here's, here's how it literally goes. Uriah the Hittite, direct object, thou hast smitten by the sword, and his wife, another direct object, thou hast taken to thee, for a wife and him direct object thou hast slain by the sword of the uh, of ben, uh, ben Ammon. now the the reason i bring that up is because uh in the hebrew when you put the direct object before the verb he's emphasizing the victimhood of uh uriah ultimately and to an extent bathsheba even though she committed the sin with david there's still a facet of it where uh, she was a victim in the in, in the very sense that uh, David had her husband killed uh, and then took her as a wife and, and it uh, it's I, I would argue that that she probably did not intend for that to happen uh, and then the verse starts off with why uh, which uh, I don't know how david would have felt hearing this but you know you go through all the things god had done for you he makes the point that if that was too little i would have done much more for you and then he just asks, why did you despise the the word of the lord uh but think of all the victims uh in this sin you've got obviously uriah you have to a, a degree uh, uh bathsheba you have the family of uriah and I don't know if Uriah had children or not, but now there's children who have no father. But another thing that we have to consider is is that Uriah, in order to to uh, take Uriah's life, the the army of Israel had to go into the thickest part of battle in order to uh, retreat from him, so that he would die. More than likely especially when you read uh, what Joab sent at the end of chapter 11. Other people died in that retreat. Uriah wasn't the only one that died in that battle. So when you think about the fact that they went into that battle for the sole purpose of having Uriah died, other men lost their lives, which means there are other wives who were widowed in the process and other children who lost their father as a result of his sin. So it's not just... Uh, focused only on Uriah and Bathsheba, but there were many people. Plus, you take the subsequent uh, rebellion and all that that would result from all this. Uh, many, many more people were affected by David's sin than just the handful of people that we often think about. Right. And um, along those lines, I know this is a long note, but and I'm not sure who this is original to. I've heard it several times, but just tracking all of David's sin and the consequences that it brought. I wrote in this chapter, sin will take us farther than we thought we were willing to go. It will keep us longer than we thought we were willing to stay. 
and it will do a whole lot more damage to us than we ever thought possible. And that's what you see with the life of David. I'm sure if you could ask him today, David, if you could go back, would you do things differently? His answer would be yes, absolutely. But that's what happens when we get into sin. You just don't expect it to turn out the way you think it's going to. Think about Luke 15 with the prodigal son. He was going to spend all his inheritance, but then he was left completely desolate. He was left with the pigs and he was left basically begging and going home, realizing what sin will do to you. And so David learned the hard way, the consequences of his sin in this chapter. That's good. One last note on this. I'd circled verse nine and drew an arrow up to the end of verse six because he had no pity. And that's essentially what verse nine uh, is, is stating. So seven and eight, we see the grace of God. Verse nine, we see the accusation of God. And then starting in verse 10, it says, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus said the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Uh, then David went to his house or then nathan went to his house <clears throat> i circled all in verse 11 uh 10 through 12 we see the retribution so we have the grace of god the accusation of god now the retribution all i did was underlined uh verse 11 behold i'll raise up evil against you out of your own house and i i linked that back to verse 8 when we talked about the kingship of david was unopposed by saul's family here now, because of his sin, his kingship is going to be opposed by his own family. Uh, and I, I think there's irony there uh, in God's punishment there. I underlined the phrase in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And I just put contrast with Herodias in Mark 16, verse 17, when John told Herod uh, that he it was unlawful for him to have his brother's wife. She held a grudge. Uh, Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, after uh, Elijah uh, defeated the prophets of Baal, and then Jehoiakim in uh, Jeremiah 36, starting verse 23, when he took the pen knife and chopped and uh, sliced up uh, the scroll of, of Jeremiah and then eventually just threw it into the fire. Uh, Nathan was was taking a big risk going into the king, but you see the, the character of David when approached with his sin, rather than acting like Herodias or Jezebel or Jeho uh, Jehoiakim, uh, David admitted his sin and, and uh, essentially repented of it, which you see at the end of verse 13. Right. Yeah, starting at verse, did you pick up at verse 10? Is that where you picked up at? Yeah. Okay. Um, at verse 11, just to add to those, I, of course, put Proverbs 15.3 and Hebrews 4.13 beside verse number 12, because verse number 12 just tells us again the fact that we see all throughout the Bible that you're not going to hide anything from God. And Proverbs 15.3, Hebrews 4.13 show us that very thing. And I also made a reference back to chapter 11. I put beside verse 12, uh, 1 Samuel 11.27, because at the end of the last chapter, 
after you see David doing everything he possibly can to hide his sin, to cover up his sin, this is how that chapter ends at the very end. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so what's the point? The point is after David deceived, after he killed, after he got people drunk, after everything he did, God still knew and God was still displeased. And so this verse in chapter 12, verse 12, again, just shows us the fact you're not going to hide anything from God. And then when you come to verse number 13, and David says unto Nathan, I have sinned. I think about some various passages in the Bible also, you know, even Saul made a similar statement in 1 Samuel 15, verse 24. And so I made a reference to that, 1 Samuel 15, 24, because Saul said, I have sinned. But the thing that's different is when Saul said it, he was not genuine. And you have different examples in scriptures of people who make that statement, I have sinned, but they don't really mean it. They don't have true godly repentance. But here you see David, genuine, and he has a humble repentance. And so I put 1 Samuel 15, 24, not all I have sinned statements are genuine, but some are. And then I made a reference to Psalm 51 because Psalm 51, of course, is believed to be written by David after this event took place. And that chapter just shows us what true, genuine, heartfelt repentance looks like. And so that's something I think about with David. You know, he was called a man after God's own heart. And of course, that was before all of this took place. The things David has done in this last chapter are not things godly people do. I mean, they were sinful activities, but David's repentance was something that was genuine. And I also put Matthew 18, because of course, Matthew 18, one through three, Jesus made the point, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be humble like a little child is basically what he says. And so David had that humility to acknowledge his sin, to make things right. And that's something I think that's so important for us today. And so you see his repentance. And the last note I have at verse 13, I said earlier under verse five, we see David's reaction to sin and that's his angered reaction. But by verse 13, I put David's second reaction to sin and that is a reaction of humility. And again, that's Psalm 51. And then just continuing with this context, really 13 through 18, you see just the fact, again, sin brings consequences. It brings suffering. And so I made a note beside verse 13 and 14, making a line all the way to 18. Sin brings suffering. And of course, there's numerous examples we could give in scripture for that. I have next to 13, uh, the true way to deal with sin. Because you look at verse 11, or chapter 11, you see all the steps that David took to try and get rid of his sin when... Uh, if he had just done this, what he did in verse 13 from the get-go, all this, uh, some things could have been avoided. I also circled the word nevertheless in verse 14 and just put the note, consequences of sin do not disappear with forgiveness. And I think that's important, especially in, in today, uh, because you have uh, things that get messed up like marriages with divorce and adultery and so forth. Uh, you have diseases that are a result of sin. Uh, and I think sometimes people think because they've been forgiven of their sins that the consequences of their sins go away as well. And that's not the case. And David, uh, is a living example of that. Um, anything else? That's all I have beside verses, um, 13 and 14. As you continue down, like I said, you see sin, sin brings suffering. 
Of course, you could talk about Romans 5.12, write that in there regarding just the consequence of sin. You can think about various examples, the whole book of Judges you might make a note to, because it just shows us how after sin comes, there's always devastation. There's always suffering that takes place. And David's life is a perfect example of just what sin will do to a person. But that's all I have on verses 13 through 15. That's great. And that's perfect because our time is about up. So there it is. Second Samuel 12, 1 through 15. Brandon, appreciate you coming on. I want to thank everyone else for listening to this. Uh, share, like, subscribe. Let your uh, friends and your family know about this. And we are done. Thank you.